Well, as I just stated, we've come to the end of our series titled The Gospel in the Life of the Church, going through the pastoral epistles of First and Second Timothy and Titus. If you've been keeping track, we've been at this for nine months. Right? Nine months concentrating our teaching and looking how the gospel shapes the life of the people of God and how the gospel shapes the life of the church of Jesus Christ as the people of God are being changed and transformed. And they're changed and transformed by a work of the Spirit, by the sound doctrine of the church, because that impacts how we live. It impacts how we conduct ourselves. If you recall, our, basically the purpose statement of this series found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where he instructed Timothy to teach the church how they ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. This is the household of God. This is the family of God. This is the people of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. So we've been saying how important is the doctrine of the church? How important is the theology, the scripture as it's taught, as it's proclaimed, as it's preached, as it's lived out in the people of God? So we've looked at that, the importance of sound doctrine, the importance of the church to that has been entrusted with this doctrine to keep it and preserve it. How those who are to lead it need to be qualified in order to keep it and preserve it. For they're the ones who then not only going to have to teach, but also have to rebuke and refute and correct those who are teaching what is false. We've been saying that a church that holds to the sound teaching of Scripture is a true church. But the ones who deviate from that who distort it via addition or subtraction or aberrant uh, teachings or extra-biblical teachings are not really a sound and healthy church. In fact, they may be a false church and not a true church of Jesus Christ. But as we conclude our series today and our study through Titus, we're going to be struck here, I believe, by the emphasis that Paul, the apostle of the Lord, places on believers giving evidence of saving faith. And the way that is going to work itself out is through their good works. We've been speaking about the ripple effects of the gospel. The ripple effects of transforming grace. First in the lives of believers, and then how that spills out and has ripple effects in in their home and in the church. And today specifically, we're going to see how that flows out to to our social responsibilities, our ethical responsibilities with outsiders. Godliness leads to good works. We've been looking at that, right? It affects everything. Doctrine and duty have to be in alignment. In alignment, Our creed and our conduct have to be in sync. Belief and behavior must be in harmony. We have to be people who practice what we preach, right, and what we proclaim, Now, Paul is not only going to give that emphasis to us here in the third chapter, but uh, he's going to give us one of the most glorious accounts of our salvation, I believe, found in the New Testament. Because he grounds this Christian responsibility to outsiders, as he has been to our responsibilities to those inside of the church in, in producing the good works of the gospel. And he grounds that in the saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as you turn there to God's word, Titus chapter 3, we're going to read... Uh, all 15 verses there, hear the words of the living God. Remind them. 
to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. These are the words of our Lord. Now, Paul begins here in this last part of his letter reminding to, for, for Titus to remind the church of something. Something is to be recalled to their remembrance. Remind them. Remind them of this. Now, that tells us these are things that they had heard before. This is not new information. This is not new revelation uh, that Paul wants Titus to teach the church. Likely, they had already heard these things from Paul. All of these uh, social and ethical requirements uh, expected of believers, how they are to conduct themselves in the world, they, they had heard these things, and now Titus is to do what, what an elder is supposed to do. Continually remind the people of God what they are supposed to do. We saw that in chapter 2. It's not just teaching sound doctrine, but also the implications and applications of that doctrine. How does that you know, work its way out in our life? What are going to be the ripple effects of that sound doctrine as our lives are changed and as it impacts everything around us? They're to live in a manner consistent with their faith, and so they need to be reminded this is what that looks like. It's part of our responsibility of elders here to declare what God requires for people to do, for his people specifically to do, from his word. Ours is not a ministry of innovation. Ours is not a ministry of alteration. It's a ministry of just constant repetition over and over 
and over again. And when you're sick of hearing it, we're going to ramp that back up and cycle it through again. As uh, the, the gentleman teaching this weekend at the men's discipleship, really what we're doing is copying and pasting is what he would say, right? This is all we're doing. That's what discipleship entails. That's what proclaiming sound doctrine is. It's we are repeating the words of our Lord's of our Lord, because why? That's what the people of God need. They don't need my ideas. You don't need my opinions. Nobody else needs your opinions. We need God's word, right? All right, so Titus has to remind them of their godly priorities, and we need to be reminded of our godly priorities. Now, we're going to sum up what he tells us in verse 1 and 2. Uh, this, this list, if you will, of ethical and moral uh, instructions into two categories. First, the Christian's responsibility to rulers and authorities. The Christian's responsibility to rulers and authorities. And secondly, the Christian's responsibility to everyone else in general. Right? What do we owe everyone else in general, especially unbelievers? All right? So first, the Christian's responsibility to rules and authorities. Now, Paul tells Timothy, again, remind them of what? To be submissive, that dreaded S word, right? Be submissive to what? Rulers and authorities, to be obedient. Now, who was the ruler and authority in the first century there? And for sure, there were municipal leaders and governing authorities there, but in general, we had an emperor over the Roman Empire who thought himself to be Lord and God, and supreme. And so Paul is saying, hey, be submissive to rulers and authorities. Be obedient. And we're going to talk about that here in a moment. But, but think about, I want, to, I want to reflect on the times right here in just the letter of Titus where Paul tells Titus to remind the church that they're not to be insubordinate. First, he lists it there in terms of the qualifications of elders. Elders should not have anyone be able to bring up a charge of insubordination. It's one of the qualifications. It's it's one of the qualities, the character qualities they must have. They must not be insubordinate people. Now, what does it mean to be insubordinate, right? It means to refuse to submit to authority. It's a disobedience. It's a defiance of established authority. It's a rebel spirit refuses to submit to any authority over them. So an elder certainly must not be insubordinate, not be able to be brought up on a charge of insubordination. Okay, But then he also writes that what is to differentiate Titus and qualified godly elders from those who are teaching what is false is that those false teachers are insubordinate. That does characterize them. Like that's their quality. They are disobedient. You see that in Titus 1.10 and 16. And then in chapter 2, when he's talking to the different groups, the different categories of people in the church, older men, older women, younger women, and younger men, and, and he instructs the older women that they are to teach the younger women to not be insubordinate, but to be submissive to their own husbands in everything. Why, he says, because that gives evidence of a living faith that will not bring the gospel, the word of God, the doctrine of God into disrepute. It will not be reviled. It will not be discredited. And then the last category he talks to is the bondservants, slaves. 
And he tells them, you don't be insubordinate either. You need to be submissive to your own masters in everything. Why? Because in doing that, you begin to, to, to give evidence and demonstrate a living faith that adorns the doctrine of God, our Savior. That is what is to characterize the believer. Disobedience is not what is to characterize the new life of a believer. A Christian is not a rebel at heart. And I know some Christians out there, they want to fancy themselves rebels and revolutionaries. And usually what that masking is, is an insubordinate spirit, a disobedient heart. We are to submit to authority that God has placed over us. Children, to your parents. Adults, to your spiritual leaders. To your employers. And ultimately, all of us, to those who are in governing authority over us. So let's talk about what is our obligation to the state? What is our obligation, our responsibility? What duty do we owe to those who govern over us in our civil life? That's an important question in our day, isn't it? I've been thinking a lot about this. And I'm hearing so many different things out there. And obviously, we, we evaluate our world. We evaluate the, the nuttiness going on in our country and in our culture. And I, I'm asking myself, when is when, right? When is enough? At, at what point do we mount some holy resistance? Now, we have a larger exposition of this particular instruction to be submissive to rulers and authorities uh, in Paul's letter to the Romans. So I, I'm just going to take a few minutes. This whole teaching is not going to be about this. Um, but I want you to see this in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. And Peter himself says something like this in his letter to First Peter in chapter 2 there. So you can read that later on. But Romans chapter 13, let's look at the principle that we are supposed to live by as the people of God. Verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Same thing that Paul is saying in his letter to Titus. For there is no authority except from, from God. And those that exist have been instituted by, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. Right? Be very afraid. For he does not, it doesn't say that part, but for he does not bear the sword in vain. Again, he states this, for he is the servant of God. An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Now, he's giving an application here to what he's just saying. Uh, For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. What's the overarching arching principle here that he's, he's laying out here? First of all, the state, we're going to call it the state, those who govern over us, those who are in ruling authority over us, okay, uh, he says something very specific here. They are authorities, not self-instituted. Now, from a worldly vantage point, it may seem that way. 
But all authorities, he's saying, are delegated by God. That ultimately, he is the one who institutes all of these authorities. He is the one who appoints them, okay? Three times, he calls those in authority, and governing authority, or rulers, servants of God. Twice as servants of God, and then ministers of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't consider, right, those who rule over us necessarily servants of God. We don't see them that way, do we? Ministers of God, especially the ones who we don't agree with, especially those who maybe do things that are not good or to promote the good, right? Uh, We don't see them as servants of God, but nevertheless, God's word is telling us that they are because there's no authority present that is outside of the governing and sovereign rule of God who is the authority over all things. So we have to keep that in mind and remember that uh, when it comes to this charge. In the common grace and general providence of God over this world, people are, are organized, right, mainly by geographical areas and territories, maybe by ethnicity, maybe by common cultural things or regional things. And those things are established, right, and, and, and then people are placed in authority. Sometimes people usurp that authority. Some people take over via war or, you know, civil strife of some sort. It it can happen in different ways, but nevertheless, right, there's authorities established. And Scripture tells us here there's two main reasons for them. One of the responsibilities of those in in, in civil government over people is, is to punish the evildoer. It's a restraining force in the world. Like that those who do morally wicked things need to be put to the sword. And God has delegated the authority of the sword to the state, to the governing authorities. He hasn't given that to the church. Now, there was a time the church usurped that authority, took that authority upon itself, and a lot of wicked things happened. We've not been given the sword. I know we would like the sword. (laughs) I know there's some of you in here who would like the sword. I know many in the church in general would like the sword. Like, we want to be the ones punishing the evildoer. Well, God says that's not our domain of authority. We have another sphere and domain of authority, but it's not that one. And the second is to promote the general welfare, welfare, the good of the people. Government is supposed to be for the good of the people. Yeah, we know. In this sinful, broken world, it doesn't always shape out that way, does it? You know? Uh, they don't always promote the good of the people. Sometimes they promote the bad of the people. Sometimes they do things and impose laws that hurt people, right, that restrict people in a way uh, that inhibits their freedoms, maybe even their religious liberties, right? But the punitive responsibility is, was given to the authorities. And generally, again, these are generalities here. There's exceptions. There's nuances to a lot of this. But generally, right, the threat of the sword is enough to restrain most of the evil, right? This is the common grace of our Lord in the institutions of these authorities. Why? Because things are not as bad as they could be, brothers and sisters. I don't believe this world has ever seen how bad things could, could be if we were just unrestrained and give full vent to our wicked, depraved hearts. We have not seen that. So God in his common grace establishes, establishes these, these particular things, right? Um, so what's the point in all of this, right? Well, he says here in Romans here that those who resist the authorities are proving that they are disobedient. They are 
rebels, right? They are insubordinate. They're resisting the authorities. And therefore, ultimately, who are they resisting? They're resisting God. He's the higher authority who put these authorities in place. He appointed them, okay? All right, so we have laws. Those who govern over us enact laws. Now, I know we have a very unique form of government in our time, right? Things that, something that really didn't exist in this format in the history of the world. Think about when this was written in the first century, right? Uh, they were, uh, this, this, these were people under Roman rule. There was an emperor over them. They were proconsuls and, and, and those who ruled regionally in these particular areas. And, and God's people were supposed to submit to them. They weren't supposed to be considered Christianity, right? This, this is the new kid on the block, isn't it? And, and the charge against them, well, these are insubordinate. Why? Because they're not saying Caesar is Lord. They're out proclaiming another Lord. They're not bowing the knee, and they're not supposed to bow the knee to Caesar, who is the self-proclaimed God and that everyone should be worshiping. They're saying there's only one God, and it's not Caesar. So can you imagine what they thought about Christians? They're disobedient. They're rebels. They're violating the laws. And, and Paul now comes and says, hey, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Okay, not necessarily in that area, but in the things that they're supposed to be in. So that charge really cannot be brought against them. Not in any credible ways. So here, why are there laws? Right? We know that not all laws are morally right and good, but generally without laws, again, society devolves into to chaos, right? So Paul gives an application here. Hey, there's some of these things, taxes, revenue that they collect. You're to give those things, right? Um, they're there for the infrastructure. They're there for the promotion of the general welfare. They're, they're there to fund what is the responsibility of the governing authorities, which is, is the threat of the sword and the application of the punishment of the sword for those who do uh, evil. So, Christians, it's your obligations to do those, to, to pay those taxes, to do those things, to do what is required. That is one instance of the application of how we are to submit to those in authority over us. Now, we tend to think of these things sometimes in the larger terms of our duties to the federal government. But how about here locally? Really, because this is kind of where the rubber meets the road. Yeah, there's things that affect us from much higher up there, but we have things we're supposed to do here. How about those of you who do, uh, you know, sometimes things that require permitting, and you're like, I'm not going to get a permit. How about some of us here who uh, excessively speed? I'm going to lump myself in that one. I have to check myself there. And there, there, there are laws, and, and, and Christians are generally supposed to what? Sub- obey them and submit ourselves to those in authority over us because ultimately it's a sign of our submission to God, who is the higher authority. Now, hear me. This is not unconditional allegiance. I've already said Caesar's not Lord, so what are the Christians? Jesus is Lord. They're not bowing the knee, right? So they were passively already resisting and not submitting to something. Why? Where our obligation to God comes into a collision course, right, with the laws or the rules of those who govern over us, it's clear what we're to do, right? We're going to be like the apostles. We obey God rather than men, always without equivocation. Amen? 
where they're asking us to do evil and to violate Christian conscience, the, comm- the clear commands of Scripture, we just go, sorry, not going to do that. Sorry, not sorry, right? <laughs> we respectfully disobey. Why? Because we have a higher authority who has said otherwise. And though they don't recognize that they are under that authority, and they will answer to God on that day, but we understand, right, in our conscientious disobedience, right, we know that ultimately we may have to give account and pay a consequence for violating man's rules, man's laws, those who are in governing authority, because we're saying we're going to obey God rather than men. Think about the apostles where you say, we're going to obey God rather than men. They didn't really escape punishment. They got beaten. They got whipped for their disobedience. And we know Christians throughout history and even to this day, right, are suffering consequences for their standing up for their faith, for obeying the clear commands of Scripture and telling wicked rulers and governors, we are not going to bow the knee to you. We're not going to do the evil things that you are commanding us to do. We obey God rather than man. The general principle is we're not rebels. We are not anarchists. Okay? That's not who we are. We don't subvert those who rule over us or disobey them unless they do something, again, that causes us to violate Scripture. But our submission is evidence of our trust in God as the supreme authority and ultimately of our submission to God. Now, there's an anti-authority spirit, right, that pervades our culture, isn't there? I mean, we see it so clearly in our nation. It is everywhere, and sadly, it has infected the church. It's disgusting how I hear some Christians so just post so freely slandering and, and insulting and name-calling, you know, specific people who are ruling over us and governing us. To be clear, I believe our current government, our current administration is an abomination. This is, this, this is an administration that calls evil good and good evil. We do not stand for those things, right? But not everything that we know is out there in our world is evil. Some of the things there are for the common good, and we as Christians must submit to those things, brothers and sisters. We have to if we're submitting to God. That doesn't mean we're agreeing in every, we're in agreement with everything. That doesn't mean there isn't a time for us to speak boldly and clearly and prophetically about the garbage that we see out here. We do it from this pulpit, right? You're free to do that, right? There's there's matters of conscience here, but do not violate the clear command and principle of Scripture. We are generally called to submit to those in authority over us. Yes? That's what Paul is telling Titus to remind them of here. Hughes and Chaplin, their commentary on Titus, right? If our gospel positions are to have credibility, we must make sure that we do not sully our stance in the political arena with words or actions that indicate unwillingness on our part to be subject to proper authority. And that's the charge brought on many Christians who are very politically motivated, right? They're... they're What they're trumpeting actually stains their Christian testimony through language, through uh, actions, and these kind of things. And ultimately, what are we to preserve? Our Christian testimony, our Christian witness. How we speak about things needs to adorn the gospel 
of God, the doctrine of our God. How we speak must not bring the gospel into discredit and disrepute. And we can easily do that by how we speak against those in authority over us. If you need multiple examples of that, see me later. Let's go on here because we have a lot to cover, right? And you're probably like, 15 verses, how are we going to do that before dinner time? Well, we got an extra hour, right? So (laughs) we want to take advantage of that today, right? So be submissive to rulers and authorities. And he says, you know, be uh, obedient. And uh, and then he says that they're to be ready for every good work. Every good work, right? That's a pretty comprehensive term there. Every good work. It's all-encompassing. We're ready to do whatever is good. That is our Christian responsibility, to do what is good. Righteous acts, right deeds, the right things, the right things in our duty, in our ultimate duty to love others because this is where the rubber meets the road. We might be one thing in here and kind to one another and gentle with one another here and tenderhearted in here and loving in here, but out there we are lions and bears and tearing and thrashing. There's a disharmony. There's an incongruity between our creed and conduct. It's not supposed to be in the church. It's supposed to also be reflected out there in a way that honors God and adorns the gospel. So ready for every good work to do what is good. To do what is in the good of your neighbor. To do what is in the good of the the general welfare of the people of this world. Because that's the scope of what he's talking about here in terms of the godly conduct of God's people and their responsibility. But in saying ready for every good work, to have that adjective good, it's also defining the boundaries of our responsibility. To the civil magistrates and everyone in general. It is to what is good. So if evil's promoted, we don't go along with that. We don't. A lot of Christians go along with evil thinking, well, we want them to know that we are for them. It's what Jesus would do. No, it's not. No, it's not. We we have to affirm because that's the most loving thing to do. No, it's not. You don't affirm lies and you don't affirm evil. We're ready for every good work doesn't mean you treat someone as if they have no dignity, you don't, as if they have no worth, as if they're not image bearers. You know that that's not true. But we are people of the truth. So we're ready for every good work. So there is a limit. There is a boundary placed around what Paul is instructing us to do in terms of our responsibility. A world that says, hey, do whatever you want. You're sexually free. Men, men women with women, people with animals. Thruples, quadruples, I don't even know if that's a word, uh, but whatever. Anything goes. No, I'm sorry. That's evil. That's wicked. That's sinful. It's perverse. We don't go along with those things. We don't affirm those things. We speak the truth. So please understand that. You know, this is not a blanket statement to say, well, if the world, whatever the world says is okay, then I guess we have to as Christians. Nope. Do you not hear that? If you hear that, you're listening to somebody else. You're listening to Joel Osteen on an earbud somewhere. The good works of grace, you're going to see here, and you've already seen, but you'll see it here in this last chapter. It's, it's a dominant theme of Titus, and, it's a, it's in the, in, and also in the pastorals in general. 
this fleshes itself out, doesn't it? It's, this is not information for our head. This isn't truth just that we know up here. This isn't to win arguments or debates. This isn't to have the upper hand and to be right. This, this, this works its way out into every facet of our life and even to civil life in our interactions with unbelievers. Good works. That's a phrase that's used 14 times in the pastorals. Anything that's repeated that many times should cause you to perk up and listen, right? Those who profess to have been saved must be devoted to good works. We just read in verse 8. And the concluding exhortation in this letter is that God's people must learn to be devoted, to devote themselves to good works. That word devote is awesome. You know what it means? To make it a profession. Like you make this your job in life, to do good works. That's what he's telling us to do here. Our good works is how the gospel is adorned and commended by outsiders, chapter 2, 9, and 10. Our good works, though not the grounds of our salvation, are the indispensable and necessary fruit of our salvation. And we will look at that momentarily. We saw last week in chapter 2, 14, that Christ redeemed us from all lawlessness to purify for himself a people as his own treasured possession who are zealous, eager to do good works. Good works. It's a big deal. Two, the Christian's responsibility to all people in general. Okay? This is, in verse 2, the general um, disposition that all Christians should have in relation to unbelievers in the world. This is how we're to relate to them. Paul gives us four attitudes and actions that must be directed toward all people. It's not the only four. He's just given us four. And remember, anytime you see a list in Scripture, it's not exhaustive. Right? He's just giving us a few, right? but it includes uh, everything else right? <laughs> that we're supposed to do. But he gives us uh, four particular ones here, and we and really have no need to go through them uh, in detail. For all of our relationships in every sphere of life are to be characterized and governed by the kind of selfless words and actions that Paul mentions to Titus here that he must remind God's people of. Okay? Our speech must not be used to speak evil of anyone. In fact, how does he say? Speak evil of no one. No one. Who are you to speak evil of? Our president? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Democratic Party? Republican leaders? Governors? Mayors? Your boss, your grandma, your mom, your dad, your pastor, your brother and sister in the Lord, that gay person that lives a couple houses away from you, your coworker who's always cursing or who makes your life miserable and who speaks evil of you. Speak evil of no one. We don't slander people. We must not be contentious, argumentative, quarrelsome. We don't pick fights. I'm not saying there aren't legitimate fights to get into. We just don't start them. We don't stir up strife. We don't stir up trouble. 
fact, he uses these here. We must be gentle, kind, kindly, if you will, friendly. Show perfect courtesy toward some people. No, he says all people. Notice the comprehensive nature of how we're to relate to everyone in the world. That's hard, isn't it? Because there are some people we don't like. There are some people we do not agree with. We are not on the same page. There are some people who are actually very hostile towards us, who hate us. But that's not supposed to be us. Notice the whole posture is one of humility here. Of what Philippians tells us to do, to esteem others greater than ourselves, more than, better than ourselves. This is an uncontentiousness, a consideration of others. This is imminently countercultural. I mean, this is so against the grain of the world here. Obviously so, isn't it? Because they're not the attitudes and actions that characterize uh, our world today. It's all about fighting. It's all about backbiting. It's all about quarreling. I mean, you can't even have a simple, civil discussion with anyone anymore. Not even with some Christians. That's why I said this, this spirit of the world has infiltrated the church and believers, you, you say something and immediately, boom, they're, man, they are on the, the offensive, the defensive. Again, they think the punishment of the sword's been given to them, right? They just want to slice you and dice you. Certainly with, with unbelievers in the world, right? Where we want to maybe challenge their presuppositions and challenge worldly ideologies and try to have a discussion, a civil debate and discourse with them. You can't have that. You will be insulted and called every name in the book. You'll have everything but a discussion, all right? So this is countercultural. But think about this, how we as Christians would stand out in this kind of world by our refusal to use the hostile and abusive language of our culture and not succumbing to that same quarrelsome, argumentative, contentious, insubordinate attitude and spirit. Would we not be different? Would we not stand out? Wow, man, I called her all these names and she didn't respond. I love watching some of these uh, street apologists and street preachers when they're out and, you know, they're proclaiming truth and someone's right in their face and, and they just remain calm. And I'm like, I don't even know if I could do that, right? Because <laughs> like, instantly, I'm, like, I'm getting angry for, you know, for their sake, man, you know. I'm like, if I was there, I'd punch him in the face. I'd punch him in the throat, man, you know? I love, I love that when they just stand there and they take it and they don't respond. They don't repay evil for evil. They don't repay that unkindness and that hostility by, by angrily responding to them. I'm like, that's the fruit of the Spirit right there. And that condemns the speech of those hateful people. For them to stand there and go, why? Because they know they have the truth. And when you have the truth, you don't need to be argumentative. You don't have to be quarrelsome. It's the ace card every time. But you don't even have to say it. That's the beautiful thing about this. And, you, and, and Christians would stand out. Okay? And all of these qualities here, aren't they the qualities of our Lord? The character of our Lord Jesus Christ? How he walked in this world? How he lived his life? Was he quarrelsome? Yeah, but he was fighting with the religious leaders. Well, in what spirit? certainly wasn't sinful, but we know our quarreling is sinful. We know argument, argumentation quickly devolves into sinful words 
cutting words, right? Destructive words. That wasn't our Lord, right? He's someone who was considerate of everyone. He was he demonstrated what true love was. He how to live amongst unbelievers, how to treat them. Now he called out sin. He called out evil. He called out what was wrong. But these so these same things are the same qualities of our Lord, and we're supposed to be like our Lord. That's how we're supposed to live, right? What wins the gospel of hearing from unbelievers is when they see a very marked and distinct pattern in the church and the people of God. It's not that they're going to agree with us. I'm not saying they're going to go, wow, they, they didn't say anything, so they must be right. That's not, that's not what's going to happen, right? But the fact that we're not acting like them, that we're not responding like them, that we're not hateful like they are, right, is an apologetic for the truth. A humble courtesy in the people of God enables them to submit to authorities, love and care for their communities, and love peace so that in everything they adorn, again, we're going back to that, adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior. But how is this even possible? How is this even possible? Where does this ability uh, to possess that kind of humility and peaceableness that he's talking about here, this consideration, this humble consideration, courtesy, and gentleness, where does that come from? Well, he tells us, right? Because if he just stopped short of just the ethical commands, we've talked about this already, without giving us the gospel implications, we're not going to make it. We're not able to do this. So now Paul turns to the theological reasons that underpin how it is that Christians can behave in the manner prescribed and that Titus is supposed to remind believers of. Here's why you and I, brothers and sisters, can behave responsibly and conduct ourselves in the public life before unbelievers in a way that honors God and adorns the gospel. And it's simply this. What Paul says here, I'll paraphrase it. We were once insubordinate, disobedient, antisocial rebels, and God saved us and changed us. That's how. That's how. Think about this. The only reason that Paul could even dare right, to instruct believers this way of their social responsibilities, their ethical responsibilities, uh, and, and, and talk to us about how we're to treat one another in the world and submit to the governing authorities here, uh, is to say that, hey, we were once like that ourselves. Christian, remember how you used to be. Remember how you once behaved, and God nevertheless rescued you and changed you. We have to remember this. Now, this whole section hinges on the main verb of verse 5 there. He saved us. Most glorious three words we could hear, right? He saved us. I like how uh, John Stott in his commentary organizes verses 4 through 7. So I'm going to use his subheadings. This is my own study, but I love the way he broke this down into these six components of our salvation. So I'm going to use his uh, subtitles and headings for that. Um, and, And we're going to unpack these glorious components, he calls them ingredients of salvation, right? But these components of salvation, it's not all of them, but it's a lot of them that give us this beautiful picture here in this passage. It is a, con- a condensed and comprehensive account of our salvation. And in fact, I think this is one of the richest and fullest statements of salvation that we find in the New Testament. And there are some wonderful passages. We, we studied one just all the way in the beginning in First Timothy chapter uh, one, and we looked at one in Second Timothy chapter one as well, and we've seen several different 
references of our salvation and the work of Jesus Christ and the gospel for us. But this is such a, just a compact but comprehensive account. I love it. And let's go, let's spend our time in here uh, and the rest of our time together this morning. Again, we have the extra hours, so it's good. Now, we're going to touch on these briefly, but these themes, again, are recurring themes in the New Testament here. And we need to be reminded of them. Okay? The first component is this, our need. Our need of salvation. The need of our salvation. Paul, in verse 3, says, here's what we were like ourselves. I love how he lumps himself in there. He doesn't just say you. He's not pointing the finger. He's not perfect. He knows this was his condition. This was his state. Remember who he was. This is our state. This was our attitude. This was our orientation in life, our conduct, right? As unregenerate, sinful, lost people, here's what we were like ourselves. This is a snapshot of life apart from Christ. This is life apart from the grace of God coming into our life. We were like this ourselves. It's the state of all unredeemed humanity. No one, no one starts off outside of this, save Jesus Christ, right? This complete state of depravity. And Paul writes this as four couplets here, as he names these attitudes and actions and behaviors of of unregenerate people, of what we used to be like. When he's saying, Titus, remind them, uh, here's why they can do this, because this is how they were themselves. This is meant to... To, to be the antithesis of the very attitudes and actions that Christians are supposed to have that he just finished telling us in verse 1 and 2. He writes that we are supposed to be submissive and obedient. And then he says, remind them that they were once foolish and disobedient. That's what we were, foolish and disobedient. We were rebels. We, we didn't want to submit to authority. We bucked authority at every corner, and ultimately we were resisting the authority of God. That's how we were. But now we can be submissive and obedient people of God. We are supposed to be ready for every good work, but we were once enslaved to our various passions and sinful pleasures. We could not do good. And any attempts at good work could not certainly earn us any merit. Could not earn us salvation could not earn us enough points of righteousness to outweigh our sinful depravity and the sin debt that was counted against us. We are supposed to be gentle and showing perfect courtesy to all people, but we were once passing our days in malice and envy. Malice, what is that? Wishing evil on others. Wishing them wrong. Envy. Desiring the good that other people have. That's how we passed our time. So it would be hard for us to show perfect courtesy. It would be hard for us to do what is good and to be gentle and kind towards others. We're supposed to avoid quarreling and speak evil of no one, but we were once hateful and hating. This reciprocal, hostile relationship with which we related to other people apart from Christ. Now some of you are sitting here going, I was a nice person. No, you weren't. None of us were. Now, you may not have had outbursts of hate, but you harbored hatred in your heart. And others hated us. That's what we once were. Totally depraved, morally 
and mentally. The human condition apart from Christ is hopeless. It's hopeless. It's why we need salvation. It's why we need rescue. And not just a one-time rescue, right? We need ongoing rescue. And Paul's writing here, if we're to appreciate how we are how we are now in Christ and what we have in Christ now and how we're to behave now in Christ, it's important to remember who we used to be. Now, the longer from that time to where we are now, the harder that becomes. And this is where some self-righteousness can start creeping into our hearts. When we're no longer relying on the grace of God and the gospel of God, we start to think, it's my goodness that continues to keep me in my faith. And keep me saved and, 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 and will furnish my ongoing salvation and bring me to glory. No. It began in grace. It continues in grace. And we're going to need this grace all the way home. Right? If we've experienced the grace of God and salvation, then when we do not act as we were to act, as we acted before we received that grace. This is what Paul is saying here. If you're in Christ, this is who you and I were, but it's not who we are now. That was our identity. That was our state, but it isn't ours now. Now, if you're not in Christ, meaning you've not trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, you're not looking to him for forgiveness of sins, you're not looking to him as your perfect righteousness, then this is who you are. This is where you find yourself at this moment. It is a hopeless condition. Why? Because you cannot help yourself out of it. You cannot save yourself. There is not enough good you could do to outweigh this morally depraved heart that Paul is writing about here in God's Word. Okay? You need salvation like all of humanity does. Your condition is hopeless because you can't change it. You can't look within yourself right, to, to find the solution found outside of you, and it's only found in Christ. Now, here's the reality, right? And here's why I'm saying we need ongoing salvation. Because as we read this list, I think we, we realize we still wrestle with some of this stuff. We still wrestle with ongoing sin in our life. Now, we believe in the doctrines of grace. We believe in the lavish grace of God that came upon us to save us, but we still struggle. We're still impatient. We still um, have outbursts of anger. We're short-tempered. We have an inner struggle to want to do good, but not doing what is good. We get mad easily. We're discontent in life. We're grieved by our desires that are not always aligned with the desires we know we should have in that accord with God's word. We still need saving grace daily. We don't ever move away from our dependency on the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't ever move beyond it. And that should humble us. There's no, there's no place for pride in the Christian life. There's no place for us to think really highly of ourselves and certainly more highly than we think of others who don't sin like we do. Or who maybe who are unbelievers. This should humble us to the ground. 
and remind us of our ultimate priority to know and believe and live out the truths of the gospel. The next component of salvation, it's the source. The source of our salvation. How do we get out of our hopeless and helpless condition of depravity? And that's what verses 4 through 7 give us. Now, in the Greek, this is actually one long sentence. And if you're in the ESV translation, you'll see it's punctuated by commas. Some translations put periods after sentences. But in the Greek, there's no punctuation. It is one long statement, right, of how we get out of this hopeless and helpless condition, right? How, how we go from what we once were to what we are now in Christ Jesus. And that is what we see there. He saved us. Notice how he starts, but when. <laughs> These are the holy buts of the Bible, right? You know something good's coming after that, right? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. We looked at when grace appeared, right? The manifestation of grace and the manifestation of glory of his first and second coming. And here we see these these attitudes, these actions, this disposition of the character of God that appears in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and all that he does for us. He saved us. He saved us. What does that tell us? The fact that he saved us means we didn't save ourselves. The fact that he saved us means we didn't do anything to save ourselves. Or anyone else could do anything to save us. He is the one who initiates our rescue outside of this hopeless, helpless condition that we have all found ourselves in. I love all of the personal pronouns used of the actions here credited to God. He saved us. It was out of His own mercy. He poured out His Holy Spirit upon us. His grace is what justified us. He, His. Those are God's pronouns in case you didn't know. It's on His Instagram bio. He saved us. He gets all the credit, brothers and sisters. This is why Paul can write in Ephesians, there's, there's no room for boasting. There's no, no one can boast. No one. I was in a friendly debate with another pastor here a few weeks back. And as he was bringing in the topic of does uh, regeneration precede faith, and he was arguing that no, faith precedes regeneration, that we as humans have the capability to express belief and trust in Jesus Christ, and then we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. And I cannot in Scripture reconcile the reality that there is anything in me that could possibly put some credit to me making a move towards God when this is telling me he's the one who makes the move towards us. And if he doesn't make the move towards us, we're doomed. We remain in that other state. Dead in our trespass and sins. And that's why in Ephesians you say, but God made us alive. He's the one who does it. Reject any notion that we can do anything anything to get to the place where we would be credited to this salvation column here. Any merit of our own, there's no way. 
He saved us. He justified. It was His grace. It was His mercy. He poured out His Spirit who regenerated and renewed us. Notice here. He gets all the credit, but we get all the blessings and reward, okay? Right? But our salvation, it's a consequence of what was in the heart of God. Of what is the heart of God. Goodness and loving kindness. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. We looked at this a while back of Jesus. It says, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. It was God's plan. Right? It was God's plan before time began. It was in the eternal purposes of God to rescue a people by his grace alone. By his own mercy. That means it's his disposition and favors towards us. Goodness, loving kindness, God's kind regard for his people. I, I, I love those words there. That God set his love upon us and determined to save us. You know why that's beautiful? You do not have to coerce God to do anything to love you, to save you, and to change you. Nothing. I don't have to convince him that I'm savable, because I'm not. And you're not. But God, being rich in mercy. But God, the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared. He saved us. You know what that tells me? God is far more committed to our salvation and transformation than we are. And I know we're committed to our salvation. I know we're committed to, to growing in godless, godliness, but he's even more committed than you and I are. What he started in you, Scripture tells us, he is faithful to bring to completion. He's going to finish what he started. We're not good at finishing what we start. I've got a lot of unfinished projects. <laughs> I've got a whole string of things that I began with the intention of bringing to completion that to this date, hitherto, remain <laughs> far from completion. But he'll bring it to completion. And so when we get discouraged, right, by our ongoing sinfulness, by still seeing some of these things inside of us, our daily struggles with walking out our salvation, our foibles, our stumbles, our fumbles, right? Here's the confidence we have. God's not going to drop the ball. Like he's going to carry it all the way across the finish line. We won't be able to do that. But what started by grace will finish by grace. What was started in the heart of God will be finished by the heart of God. What started in the eternal mind and plan of God will come to its completion. Because he is the source of our salvation and rescue. Not us. Not us. Praise God for that. Here's the other component, the grounds of our salvation. Our salvation does not rest on our own righteousness or good works. Praise God, right? Our best attempts at righteousness fall short of God's standard of perfection and holiness. We know these things. We are reminding ourselves of these gospel truths. Paul writes that we were saved according to his own mercy, not because of any works done by us in his righteousness. Okay? That means... 
our attempts to be good or do good religious works or deeds or financial giving to religious organizations or perfect church attendance or I read through the Bible once a year or I read my Bible every day. I pray. Nothing we do can earn this. Those works, they're good works. They're not bad things to do, right? Those things aren't righteous by God's standards. But that doesn't mean that a work was not required for us to obtain our righteousness. Righteousness was required. We just could not attain it. But Christ did, right? Christ did on our behalf. Mercifully, God sent his son who lived a life of perfect obedience and righteousness. And our salvation rests solely on the mercy of God and the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ in our place. That's why he writes in verse 7, then, how are we justified? We're justified by his grace, not by our works. By his grace, not merited by us. Now, to be justified means that God has declared us to be righteous. And he does that through the sin-bearing death of his son. We talked about how he redeemed us last week from all lawlessness, from our law-breaking rebel spirit. He redeemed us from that. By living a life of perfect obedience. So he can die that substitutionary death and pay the penalty that you and I could not pay. This is all a work of grace. We didn't do any of this. It's one of the reasons, again, we can have assurance of salvation. Because it didn't start with us. If you and I are not the grounds of our salvation, our own righteous attempts to do good works or obey God perfectly then we never need to look to ourselves for confidence of whether we are saved or not. Looking to yourself is a sorry way to have assurance and confidence in salvation. Because some days, (laughs) frankly, don't look like it. (laughs) I don't feel like it. But I don't look to myself. You don't look to yourself. You and I need to look to our perfect, righteous Savior. That's who we look to. And the mercy and grace of God alone, he is the source of our salvation. Now, the means of our salvation. How does God bring about our salvation and change us? Well, he tells us it is by the washing and regener- of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Now, we cannot even scratch the surface of all that is packed into that phrase by washing of regeneration, renewal by the Holy Spirit. But what's he saying here? Because this is how we're saved. And not only how we were saved and brought out of that, that existence that we once had into the one we have now, but it's also how we continue in our salvation, how we are continually saved and we will be until that day. It is all through the work of the Holy Spirit richly poured out on us through Jesus Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who assigns and applies to us all of the benefits of salvation that were accomplished in the work of of Jesus Christ. Now think of those that regeneration. Regeneration is the language of being born again, isn't it? John chapter 3. This is what Jesus was speaking about there when he said you must be born again. You must be made new. You need to become a new creation. It's a whole new existence, right? This is the language of going from being spiritually dead to becoming spiritually alive, that is a work of the Spirit, right? That's what He does. God takes out our cold, dead, lifeless heart and gives us a heart that's pulsating with new life. 
a heart that has affections for God, a heart that desires to obey God and please God and live for God and trust Jesus and follow Jesus. If we don't have that, we won't be able to do this because of what we once were, right? Disobedient, hateful and hating, full of malice and envy, enslaved. That's the language we, we, we just read there. You were a slave to what? To your own sinful passions and pleasures. We were slaves to sin. We didn't want God. We didn't follow God. When God saved me, I wasn't looking for him. It was the last thing on my mind. Until this work happened. And it's what happened in your life as well, right? By the Holy Spirit, we are not just repaired from our broken, sinful condition. You're not a refurbished unit. You know how sometimes you go shopping for something? I could save a few dollars by getting a refurbed item. Right? They just kind of slap some other paint on top of a scratched area or, you know, they've replaced some parts. God doesn't do that with us. He didn't just take that dead heart and tweak it up a little bit, tune it up a little bit. Gives us a new heart, new desires, new affections. Isn't that what he writes to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5? You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. You're not just a leveled up model of the old you. You're not just someone that he writes about. Here's what we once were ourselves, just not as much so. No, no, that's not what he says here. We experience a radical new beginning. That's what the Holy Spirit does in us. Now, the washing here, and there's a definite article there. It's the washing, so this is a noun. He's likely referring to our our baptism, right? Our water baptism. And water baptism is is an outward and visible sign of the inward spiritual grace that the Holy Spirit does in us. Applying salvation to us, washing away our sins. We're brought into union with Christ Jesus, right? We have this new birth Uh, of the Holy Spirit. It's a symbol of our being regenerated by the Spirit. Okay, that's what it is. So I think this is in light here, and some some scholars disagree here, but I think this is what he's referring to here. Again, he's not trying to give us a full unpacking of all these theological truths here. Okay, this statement, actually verses 4 through 7, some scholars believe was an ancient hymn or creed. They sang this. They recited these truths of the gospel. I don't know if that's true or not. But I, I think so. So that's what we do. This is why we, we follow our Lord in baptism. Now, if you've not been baptized, but if you've trusted in Jesus Christ uh, and, and him alone in salvation, uh, you need to be baptized. You need to go under the waters as a symbol, as an identification of our union with Christ and being raised to new life. So if you'd like to get baptized, see me after the service, right? We're going to do that here soon, Okay. The Holy Spirit, through his work, does this work. And that produces godliness in the people of God. And that godliness then leads to the good works that we are to do, ready to do, and be devoted to doing. And because we've been saved, you and I are continually being changed. Now, we were once like that ourselves, but we're also not like we once were when we first came to faith in Christ, were we? Hopefully, you'll see now. I picture my sanctification like this, you know, you know, but over time, I, I do feel that trend is upward, right? 
<laughs> Some days I'm not sure, but I think generally over the course of a little over three decades of my life, you know, it's gone all over the place, but I think it's in that it's trending good, okay? <laughs> and I think that's true of you, but not because of you, but because of this work of the Spirit in us here. Now think about this. If the whole of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are committed to saving you and to, to saving me and to saving all of us in Him, how can this fail? How can it fail? How can it be aborted? How can something that started with God, was initiated in the heart of God, purposed by God, planned by God, executed by the Son, applied to us by the Holy Spirit, the triune God, how can that fail? It can't. And if that doesn't encourage you, I've got nothing else for you. That keeps me going every day. The goal of our salvation, what, is all, what does this all lead to? Where's it going? Right, what's, what's the end line here, right? We were saved, he tells us here in this passage, for a particular purpose, right? That we're being justified by his grace, that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What does that mean? Okay. This tells me here that God will accomplish his saving work to the nth degree. Whatever it takes. All the way through, he will bring us all the way home to glory. Now, this comes full circle, brothers and sisters, to Paul's greeting in chapter 1. In the very opening verses of this letter, Paul tells us his ministry aim. It is for the sake of the saving faith of God's elect, right? And their knowledge of the truth which accords or leads to godliness, he said, and he writes, in the hope of eternal life, whom God who does not lie promised before the ages began. That's a powerful statement here. Now, we sang this earlier. I know how the story ends. I know how the story ends. You and I have the privilege of reading the last chapter in this thing. The last chapter of human history. The last chapter of all of human existence. And, and the telos of this whole scope and sphere and plan of redemption. And where this ends is glorious. All of it is moving to the consummation of all things under the reign and rule of King Jesus. And he tells us here we're heirs of this eternal life. We're heirs of all of that. In fact, Paul writes later on that we are co-heirs with Christ. What does that mean? We get to rule and reign with him in glory. That's the outlook of this thing. Future is bright. That's why it's not your best life now. <laughs> Lastly, the evidence of our salvation. Let's just bring it home. Even though I didn't use up my full hour, extra hour here. Paul loops us back now to the theme of good works, right? He, he, he moves from this glorious exposition of the account of our salvation now back to good works. This is how this glorious salvation proves itself out. There will be visible change in the people of God. There will be visible change uh, in those who have believed and experienced salvation. The fruit of this ongoing and continuing work is that God's people will make it their profession, as I said, 
make it their mission in life, their missional priority to do the good works that they were created to do in Christ Jesus. Works that Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that he fashioned beforehand for us to do in him. This, Paul writes, these things are excellent and profitable for people. It's profitable. It's useful. It's good. It's excellent. It's life-giving. It's the way of a blessed uh, life. It's the godly life that must be manifested by all who have believed in God. Good works. It seems to work its way out. Now, in that last section there, which we're not going to spend time with here, but verse 9 through 11 there, right? He's, He's telling Titus there, hey, avoid things that are divisive. Avoid things that are going to distract you from doing the good works. Uh, Avoid not just issues, right? Foolish controversies. Don't get caught up in that stuff. Arguments and quarrels about myths and genealogies and just dumb stuff. That's basically the paraphrase there. Don't get caught up in dumb stuff. Don't get caught up in things that are going to distract you from the life you're supposed to be living. So whether it's divisive issues or he writes here divisive people, avoid them. Avoid them. And I tell you the same thing. Avoid divisive people. Thankfully, there are none here. But if there were, my job is to rebuke you once and a second time. Discipline you. And then we avoid you. Why? Because that distracts, distracts us from the priorities that we're supposed to have as the people of God. We who are recipients of grace, who have understood the richness of God's mercy towards us, need to devote ourselves to the good works of grace. To live lives that are consistent with our profession of faith. And thus adorn the gospel, the doctrine of God our Savior, to the praise of his glorious grace. It's all of grace, brothers and sisters. I close with how Paul closed this letter. Grace be with you all.